Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, this podcast episode is brought to you by our sponsor, St. Gaster. So are you looking at getting your product into the hands of the right people, the people that are going to absolutely love it? Did you know that podcast advertising is literally 4.4 times more effective than the traditional display type of advertising? So if you're looking at really using podcast advertising, you may want to connect with Sencaster. So they've created this thing. It's called the Sencaster Podcast Marketplace, where you can connect as a brand or a company with the right type of creators. And again, you know, via Sencaster, you can connect with people like myself, where essentially we are putting ads of the brands and the companies that we absolutely love. So again, if you are interested in doing this, just go to sen.ai forward slash dealmakers1, and that is a number one. And again, the team at Sencaster will be able to guide you in the right direction. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really interesting founder. I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit about the unique investor meetings, about raising money, about building, scaling, and everything in between. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jeremy King. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here and excited to chat. So, uh, so originally, obviously, you know, you have your parents from the U.S., but you were born and raised in London. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Slightly confusing in that uh, as a kid, I constantly thought that we would be moving back to live in the US in various places, but I was growing up English and I was the youngest of about 30 cousins and they all knew about these weird English relatives that they had living in London and every now and then we'd show up in the States and say hello with funny accents and be talking about some different crazy words. Um, and it's the manifestation I have now is I've I've traveled a lot in the US. I lived in Boston for a while. My wife is Australian. I live in London, but I don't really hear in English different accents unless I try. I can tell who is American, who is Canadian, maybe which state you're from, maybe where you're from in the UK, but only if I actively listen. And that's kind of a bit of a gift um, in that the world is you know, much more open and level. It's also a bit of a curse in that I don't really know who anyone is and I'm worried. We're actually very confused by all of this. So quite entertaining, quite fun. Uh, and it's, it's fun to bounce back and forth between two countries like we do at a test. Hey, well, for sure you got the British accent. And uh, I guess, you know, here with my Spanglish, you know, accent too, we got the battle of accents going on. So I'm sure that the listeners <laughs> are going to appreciate that. So, so Jeremy, let me ask you this. I mean, in your case, you went on to, um, to Edinburgh to study biology. I mean, out of all things, biology. So how do you land, you know, studying biology? Well, in the UK, Weirdly, your your major or what you study in undergrad isn't necessarily related to your career. It's it's much more of a qualification. Did you go to college and did you do a subject which you know different employers consider to be hard or challenging? Some some degree subjects at college are related to your career. So it's difficult to be an engineer if you didn't study engineering. It's difficult to be a doctor if you didn't study medicine. But everything else is quite free form. So the choice of biology was much more around my personal interests. I've always been fascinated by underwater worlds, natural worlds, ecosystems, how different animals interact with each other, why tuna are so streamlined in the engineering of the internal blood flow um, system of a tuna, 
all of those types of things I found absolutely amazing. And I went to uni and college to learn more about that because it was getting the qualification, but it was also fun to learn. And I really personally enjoyed it. And it's quite liberating in the UK that you have this choice and it doesn't really dictate what job you go for after. Um, it was then unusual to look at a whole bunch of jobs in business and compare doing that against doing a PhD in more biology and a whole bunch of other things I thought about. But that's why I chose biology. And I was lucky to study genetics and synthetic biology and mathematical modeling of animal behavior. And I developed a real love for stats and data. And many of those things are things that we bring to life at a test today, the things that I believe in, things that we believe in, and things that we want more of in the world. And that's inspired by starting out as a scientist. So how do you end up in McKinsey? Because, I mean, going from uh, thinking about blood flowing in tuna to uh, McKinsey, I mean, it's, it's quite, a, quite a jump there, eh, Jeremy? Well, I can tell you the, the version I told them. Would that be interesting? Go for it. Yeah, so, so, so like in any big kind of application to a... a big company, I was looking for a way to stand out. Um, and my method was as follows. So I basically said in the interview, you have lots of highly trained economics or business or um, engineers, and that makes up 70, 80, sometimes 90% of many McKinsey intakes and cohorts. So I'm clearly something else. The weird thing is, the more I've learned about consulting and about McKinsey, it seems that what you do is you take large data sets and then you sort of interrogate them to figure out, you know, what's the pattern no one else is seeing. You have to present that in an executive summary. You have to show your method and your working and why that conclusion is robust. You have to constantly challenge the assumptions and look for flaws and test whether you have bias in the method. And what you do at McKinsey is basically identical to what we do in biology, where we don't have an executive summary, you have an abstract where you have to write a very synthesized version of what you've done. We do have huge data sets, and you have to find the alchemy of what's in there that no one else can see. And that's the value you're adding, you have to survive peer review, you have to uncover your own bias. So the very scientific method that I've been doing for four years means that I've been doing McKinsey for four years more than everyone else in the application pool. And that's why I think I can be effective in this role, because I've already been trained to do this. The bit I don't have is business, but we all know that that's secretly a little bit easy. And that's what I'm here to learn. So I'm coming this different direction. And the question of you is, is that interesting? Um, so I was trying to stand out and make it a bit weird. And unfortunately for McKinsey, it worked. <laughs> Now, now with them, you work for quite a while. I mean, you were for like eight years and that was like pre-MBA and post-MBA. So so why why the MBA? I mean, why did you decide it was a good idea to do an MBA? Two main reasons for me personally. One, because I, I studied biology, I didn't understand some of the basics of business. I didn't, you know, even after a couple of years working at McKinsey, I knew a lot about how to do consulting, how businesses work, how decisions are made, how boards and executive teams work. And you, you know, travel around the world solving these extremely unsolvable and difficult problems, um, somehow with a laptop and a positive attitude, and great teamwork and great values and things like that. But I didn't have a complete understanding of, of business. I couldn't really read a balance sheet. I had never worked in manufacturing or supply chain. I didn't really even have an appreciation about how that bit of business worked. I hadn't really met people who weren't consultants. Those are the only people I've come across or clients. Um, and those are very specific situations. So I, I was missing some of the fundamentals. So Unlike most people going to business school, I actually went there to learn stuff about business because for me, it was filling in some really big material gaps that I had. 
The other bit is um, in many consulting firms, including McKinsey, you cannot reach the next level unless you leave for two years and do something else. And the most classical thing to do is an MBA. And uh, I was lucky that McKinsey offered to pay for me to do that. And I jumped the opportunity. It's probably the greatest gift I've ever received and probably the greatest gift I will ever receive. And I absolutely loved every second, met all sorts of fascinating people, met many of my best friends there, also met my wife there, traveled to lots of different destinations and learned lots of crazy things. And I really try to use that time for maximum effect because deep down, I'm like Johnny Five in short circuit trying to gain input and learn things about the world. And business school was a great place to do that. Wow. I mean, Harvard Business School too. I mean, obviously the, the network that you build there is it probably it's remarkable. And if you combine that with a network of McKinsey, I mean, a combination that is magical. So in your case, you actually went back to McKinsey probably because you had to fulfill, you know, whatever amount of time that you had committed to for them, you know, allowing you to do the MBA. But um, was were, were you already like, the, was the seed already planted of, of you wanting to build your own company after the MBA or, or how did that happen? It was during... Um, so the people that I met along the way that I really admired during the MBA, they were people who'd started businesses. To me, that looked like magic. I I talked to them and I thought, how on earth did you incorporate the company in the US or in Europe? How did you arrange accountants? How on, how did you start to hire people? This just seems impossible. They were like, oh, that's the easy bit. Incorporation. 10 minutes, $15, <laughs> get accountants. There's loads of accountants. You just tell them the problem and you pay them a nominal fee. There's loads of support out there for you. There's loads of VC funding. All these things work in your favor. All you need to do is just you know, take the risk to start. And I thought these people were magic. They were like Michael Jordan and, um, and Serena Williams to me. I thought they were incredible. And what they told me is, A, you can do this. B, you just need to have the right set of ideas and the right attitude and it's out there for the taking. And so what I learned is it's not magic. The bits that I thought were hard are easy. The bits that are hard are the bits that I kind of wanted to learn. And for me, it became a very natural conclusion to to go and do that myself. Um, the biggest barrier for me personally was convincing myself to, to not stay at McKinsey. Um, it's a wonderful career path certainly nothing wrong with it many things right with it uh, and it felt like a really big deal but every bit of advice i got was try it what's the worst that can happen um and never look back forever mm-hmm. grateful for my time at mckinsey and harvard business school but i think in many ways that helped set me up for some of the things that um i've enjoyed most to attest and learn from and obviously i mean mckinsey eight years i mean that's a long time to work in in corporate so so bring us back what was that day like when you realize it's time to to go at it and you know when you actually you know decided to put your notice in and take the leap of faith i basically had a number of people tell me that you need to stop thinking about this and intellectualizing because the one thing that all great entrepreneurs do is they actually take the leap and actually go out and get it and do it uh and that i was thinking about you know could i start a business part-time on the side could i do this in the background could i hire a small team build an mvp while still at mckinsey and kind of hedge my bets and every single person who i thought was credible told me you have to completely burn the bridge no going back you must go all in on this thing because not just because that's what investors want that's what the people who would join you in this venture that's what they will expect that's what you should expect from yourself and if you don't believe it enough to go for it, then you've got more work to do. And so every bit of logic and advice I got, and I'm forever grateful to those people. Um, one of them was Matt Prince at Cloudflare. He gave me very short words of wisdom, but 
very pertinent that basically said you should do this and you have to burn all the bridges and just go for it otherwise you'll never know and no one you'll never do it as well as you can um that just said go for it and there wasn't a single moment where it dawned on me in the shower or i spotted a gap in the market i don't have a a shark tank or dragon's den moment like that it's an accumulation of experiences and view of the world and beliefs that at some point hit a threshold where i was like i'm just going to go out and try this because the first action is the most important so then what, what happened next well I did do the exact opposite of what I just said for a month. So before starting the company, before we incorporated, before we started building MVPs and talking to investors and employing people and writing code, I wanted to prove a few bits of hypothesis to myself. And there was one particularly weird moment. So before starting a test, I was trying to figure out the hypothesis that the demand for great data about consumers and consumer insight and knowledge and continuous insight is far broader than meets the eye. Everyone in every B2C business wants to be more customer-centric and data-driven, I believed. But I didn't really know that. It was you know, high belief, but no validation. So I, I came up with the best validation I could. And I went to Waterloo Station, which is just you know near the House of Parliament in London, quite near where I lived at the time. And I went to two stores on the upper level. If anyone's seen the Bourne Identity, that's the, that's the station they run through. There's kind of a downstairs with all the trains, there's an upstairs with some shops and all the notice boards. I went to two of the shops at the level and I went to the store managers. The stores were Links of London that sell accessories and tie clips and cufflinks and lots of cool things like that. And then Kiehl's, which is a skincare and healthcare company. I went to the store manager and said, what don't you know about the people of Waterloo Station that you wish you knew? Uh, and they out came this tsunami of emotion and lack of awareness and gap. They said, I don't know why people don't come into the store. Do they even know that we're here? What do people want to buy when they're coming through Waterloo Station? Is it gifts? Is it this? Is it that? I can tell you what we're selling. I can tell you what head office sends us. What I don't know is what's the unfulfilled demand? Why doesn't every single person walk into our store? What would they want from us that we're not doing right now? And they both of the store managers said very similar things. They had very similar problems. And when I asked them, what are you doing about this right now? They said, nothing. I just hope. I stock up the store. I do the best marketing I can. I rely on central functions to give me that. But I know Waterloo is different. I just can't say why or what I should do about it. And I was like, right, here we go. This is super interesting. So I physically went around Waterloo Station and for each store interviewed 100 people with a clipboard while they were waiting for their trains and gathered the answers to this question. Uh, And there were two remarkable things that happened. One is I personally tabulated that data of a weekend, um, you know, holding holding a packet of chips (laughs) and a soft drink and tabulated the data and turned it into the conclusions. And I went back to the store managers with the answer to their question and said, here's the things that you wish you knew about the people of Waterloo Station that would cause you to meet your quarterly revenue targets. And here's what you should do about it. And they they both said, this is the most interesting thing that's ever happened. I'm immediately going to bring over all of the team. I'm immediately going to send this head office. I'm super excited to do all of these things. And it was, for them, alchemy. The other weird thing that happened was one of the people I accidentally reviewed ended up being the London and Southeast England area manager of Lynx, one of the stores. And she was like, what the beep are you doing, doing research, unlicensed, unsanctioned on behalf of Lynx? And who are you? What are you doing? I was like, okay, I'm onto something here. Both of those said there is big demand for information. And also 
someone is going to try to control this, but deep down, it's going to help you achieve more revenue. And that told me we're on to something here with the test. The early genesis of the product, it was solving this much, much wider problem than the existing market research industry covers. The demand really was everywhere. And we proved that out with more actions over time. But the genesis was two months before I even incorporated the company. I ran this you know, self-proving and market validating exercise in Waterloo Station. And it was really quite weird. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, for the people that are listening to get it, like what ended up becoming the business model of, of the company? Like how do you guys make money? So we, we charge an annual subscription um, to basically get data or show things to, to or from the customers that you wish you knew the most about but have no access to. Um, most of our customers are B2C companies and they use our product to understand their target market better in order to grow revenue faster. Specific ways they do that is I've got 30 ideas for a new product or campaign and I want to know which one's going to work in which country and which language or whom and which reasons. Or I'm considering launching in a bunch of different markets or sectors. Who am I competing against and what do those people care about? Um, these target customers, they're not in my CRM. They aren't my existing customers. They don't give me feedback. I can't email them. They don't respond to my campaigns. That's why I need to reach them. That's why this is the most valuable thing. And that's the problem that the test solves. We make it very easy to reach the customers that you wish you knew about, but you have no access to right now. And deep down, all of our customers use that to grow revenue faster, be right, launch the right products, build the right things. Um, and that's a very valuable problem. And that's quite fun to do. Um, we call it continuous insights because that's what our product gives you. You buy it on an annual basis. You can use it every day to generate this data that solves your most valuable growth problem. But every single customer and user uses our product in a completely different way. And that's kind of the most exciting bit, but also the most terrifying bit as we build a product in the company around this very, very wide opportunity. And in terms of, um, you know, like really building 
building the, 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 the platform in the service that you guys are providing here. I mean, it sounds like quite technical. So how did you go about building the team, you know, the, the early members? Yeah, the first, the first two years really were about building the backend architecture. So there was a branch very early on where we could build a, a cheap, cheerful and very simple version. Um, which we did, but then we immediately threw it away because it taught us that for the long term to build a really big company that could be at global scale and work at huge transaction volume that we have today, we would need to build the architecture right from the beginning. So we we set out to build a microservices architecture because we knew that we would be adding all sorts of different components and capabilities and video and audio and different languages and different conditional logic and very advanced forms of research statistical analysis made easy for CMOs who know that they want statistical robustness, but have no idea how to go about it. It was, we needed to solve that all in the product. So we set out our architecture and the first two years were really building the back end. There was very little you could see. We had no revenue to show for it. We had no visible product really. It gradually came into, into the light in mid 2017. And that's when we first started really having commercial success. But first two years were building the thing that would support the next four or five years of growth. Um, and we were lucky to get venture funding very, very early on. And that's what allowed us to do it this way. And in terms of uh, venture funding, I mean, you guys have raised quite a bit. You guys have raised over 100 million, 104 million to be more precise. But how has been the journey of raising that money and going through the different financing cycles for you? We've done that across all four rounds. So we had a very early seed round, then we had um, a sort of more normal seed round um, a little bit later than that. Then we ran a big Series A that was led by NEA, um, big Silicon Valley investor. That was Q2 2019. And then most recently, we've raised with a a number of new investors, uh, another 65 plus million. And that was in um, August, September 2021. So over the course of those rounds, we were building out the product and then we had very good early commercial traction and that's accelerated and that led the link between the seed and the series A and the series B. Um, the crucial moments for us have been twofold. One, we launched our first ARR product on November the 1st, 2017. That was a big moment for us. We did that about six months earlier than we originally thought. We were like, oh, it's ready. Let's take the risk. We moved all of our existing customers from this kind of ad hoc usage where they would use our product when they felt like it. And we said, nope, you should do this all the time. And we're going to cause you to do it that way. Huge risk, but that really paid dividends in that we grew to 1 million ARR and larger very quickly um, with great net retention metrics, great um, great CAC payback and sales cycle metrics. So many, many good SaaS metrics, some that we you know weren't so good. Um, and then our Series A was about A, making that all bigger and in more places and be filling in the gaps in the SAPS metrics that we'd either consciously ignored or hadn't quite cracked yet. <laughs> um, still working all of those things, and that's why we're not NASDAQ listed yet. So then in, in, in this regard, I mean, tell us about this funny story that you had at, uh, at, at a Series B uh, meeting with an investor. What happened there? Yeah, there was one particularly unique meeting where you know, most most VC meetings go a similar way. What's the founding story? Tell us more about you. Let's have a look at the metrics. We're going to calibrate that about what matters for us. We're going to talk about that. Like, that's how most VC meetings go. And that's a wonderful way to, you know, introduce companies to investors to figure out what we can do together. And that's always quite a fun process. 
There was one that really stood out, and I shouldn't name the fund, but it was in the Bay Area, and um, they're quite distinctive and unique, where the meeting had the exact opposite process. So I walked into the room, and the person said, hmm, very interesting. Love you to meet you. Um, I, you know, I read the deck, obviously, but what's more interesting is, since this specific front-end engineer joined, you've been releasing um, an average 7.4 times per day, uh, rather than five before they joined. Is that attributable solely to that one person, or is that something that you were doing more generally and it's just, you know, beta rather than alpha? I'm like, oh wow. And they named the person. I was like, okay, this is very different. And they said, then they said, what's also interesting is it, it looks like this is your best performing inbound lead generation go-to-market campaign. And um, but it seems to be positioned at this company size. And that doesn't fit with what you're telling me about your average contract value in your sales cycle. So if this is indeed your best performing asset, um, then how is that compatible with you know the rest of your business and are you trying to change your strategy to play more into this sort of thing? Is that what I'm seeing here? And it became very clear that this fund had aggregated all possible you know, overt public information. They'd screen scraped our web traffic. They'd mapped our LinkedIn to that web traffic, and they'd basically done some amazing data science jazz. And I said, okay, what are you looking at here? Because it was clearly looking at a laptop. He flipped around the laptop. It was basically a Bloomberg terminal about a test that was almost as good as our Salesforce, Looker, and other you know, MI and BI tool set, but reverse engineered outside in. And he'd come up with all of these different hypotheses, and the conversation was about testing them. I was like, immediately, this is very interesting, extremely unique. How have you come up with this? Blah, 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 blah. But it's a particularly surprising moment. And you know, for many European founders going into um, Silicon Valley or Bay Area funds, the process is very similar. Sometimes it's very different. And that was a particularly fun and spicy one for me. And I enjoyed that conversation so much. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, that's like going into an x-ray and uh, yeah. you know, everything is uh, fully visible. So unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Now, for the people that are listening to get a, a good understanding of the scope and size of a test today, I mean, how, how big is the business? How many employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, so we're, we're today uh, about 160 team members um, split across London, New York, and then we have a bunch of people who work in all sorts of other places. Um, we are pretty much half R&D, that being engineering, product, design, data science, um, very big part of how we solve the problem um, that we that is behind our mission and vision is fundamentally making very powerful and high quality research easy and accessible uh, to the point where you can use it any day, every day for every decision, because that's what most companies want to do. And that's why we invest so much in product and design and data science to make that retain that power, but make it easy because, you know, all of the work behind that, that's our problem to solve. And the market desperately wants more data, more clarity, more customer centricity, and we need to make it easy enough that they can actually do it. Um, the other half of our business is a very classical B2B SaaS go-to-market model. So we have marketing, RevOps, sales, and CS, and we most of the time don't really compete with anybody, which means that we set the rules about how we, how we go to market, how people buy, and uh, that gives us a very short sales cycle, but with quite a high average deal value. And then our biggest focus is on, you know, expanding customers engagement and usage over time, we only charge for one thing, which is useful data output. 
Um, we do that on an ARR only basis, but it means that it's very clean. As a customer, you only pay for useful stuff. You effectively only pay for what you use. And our job is to convince you that you can achieve this and that you should use it more and for more things. And if you do, um, we all win. And that's you know very simple, very authentic, and very clean. And that means that we are, you know, are also measurable as a SaaS business, and that makes it easy to hire people consistently, easy to measure ourselves, easy to find out where's areas to improve, and scalability is also very, you know, very easy in theory. Not always that easy in practice. Now, imagine you go to sleep tonight, Jeremy, and you wake up in a world where the vision of a test is fully realized. What does that world mm. look like? Oh, I have never spoken about this publicly before. Um, it's a great question. So, you know, w- what is mission accomplished effectively? Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah. So a recap on our mission, and then I'll describe mission accomplished. So we exist to inform every intuition and dissolve any doubt by making it very easy for anyone to uncover opportunity with consumer data and consumer inputs. Um, And we say inform intuition and dissolve doubt because great marketers, great people who work in B2C companies, they have all sorts of ideas about what their target customers want, how to win, what to launch, where to go, what to build, who to compete with. Should we price higher, lower? Should we make it purple or green? Should we get Neymar or Tiger Woods to be the face of our brand? All of these things are intuitions. Um, We exist to add new data and input from those target customers to inform those intuitions. We're not saying what is right or wrong. We're just helping you make a better decision with more input from the people that you, you know, that will decide whether you win or lose, which are the customers. Dissolve any doubt. Many times, you know, it's difficult to make bold moves because it's not supported by evidence or there's so many bold moves you could make, you it's difficult to choose. So we dissolve any doubt by saying you can become so confident in doing great research that you can make bold moves and you, you know, it doesn't actually feel bold. It looks bold, but you're so convinced by having the right data and the right basis for for choice that you can do bold things. And this leads to a, you know, this is a real example. Bloom and Wild, which is Europe's number one online flowers retailer, uh, they've become that over the last four years. Um, they completely stopped, because of a test, completely stopped selling red roses at Valentine's Day because it's the wrong choice for consumers. They delisted the number one selling SKU at Valentine's Day, and that achieved them a four times year-on-year increase in Valentine's Day period revenue. Um, wow. That's the type of bold move. They used data from a test to uncover that bold move, remove all the doubt behind doing it, they had the intuition that red roses are a bad idea. No one likes receiving red roses. People who give red roses say that it's lazy last minute. They discovered that this is kind of unique to the UK. So the boldest move is in the UK, but UK only. Can't repeat that other places. And they did it and they were rewarded. And that's the type of thing where making consumer research continuously accessible to the right people to inform intuition, dissolve doubt, that's where that gets real. And that's the kind of thing we like to see. So to answer your question, mission accomplished is when someone who works in manufacturing of t-shirts in Indonesia, and they're trying to export to Canada, A, knows that they wish they knew more about Canadians. B, they know that if they knew more about Canadians, they would probably manufacture the right things. C, they realize they can do something about that because D, a test's marketing and awareness is allows them to know that E, they can open up their laptop and they can use a test to understand that F, 
the Stanley Cup final ice hockey is four weeks away. And what I need to do immediately is print 100,000 Vancouver Canucks, this is our year 2022 t-shirts. And then finally, they will make two years worth of revenue in one week because they can see this where other manufacturers don't. And that's where the great power of understanding your type of customers really comes to life. And, you know, we so simple to help that business, so simple to help them unlock these goals. But if that's happening and that person in Indonesia can use our product with no training, our product works in many languages. It is present in many markets. Many people have heard of us. Our marketing worked. Our product is so simple that this person who doesn't know how to do research knows that they can use it and actually use it to uncover a very valuable thing. And it's valuable. They make two years of worth of revenue in one two-week period and they crush their millennium <laughs> and their competition all by knowing their target customers better. And if that's happening, we're probably in 50 countries. We're probably hundreds of millions of ARR. We hopefully aren't thousands of people because we don't need to scale our, our you know, infrastructure and, and team size in line with ARR. But lots of good things have happened if that's if what I've just said has come true. And that would probably be my version of mission accomplished. That's when I'd say, yeah, everything we said had to do is now possible. And I'm wondering what's next. Nice. Now, imagine I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. And I give you the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self right before you were taking that leap of faith with, you know, from McKinsey to start a test. What would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self before starting a company and why, given what you know now? I was far more focused on investors and fundraising than I realized I needed to be. Clearly, investment is what allows us to be loss making and move faster and build bigger than our revenue earns us on a cash flow break-even basis. So particularly as a SaaS company with you know global scale and ambition, you need investment money to unlock that larger opportunity faster and sooner and bigger than you could do by yourself without that investment. But I was far more focused on SaaS metrics, what investors wanted, um, and fundraising events alone. Clearly, that was good in the early days because we could win VC funding early on, and then we use that to build a very big and scalable product. But I think I was far more focused on fundraising than building the company. Um, it, I got lucky in that we did a lot of good things early about hiring the right people, having the right values, thinking about the long term and slowing down things like product and revenue in the early days with the long term gain in mind. But if I had a time machine, I would go back and say, don't focus on fundraising alone. Fundraising is just an enabler. Fundraising does not make a company by itself. The team makes the company. The customers make the company. Solving customer problems makes the company. Fundraising is an ingredient. Yes, it's like the flour in bread. You can't live without it. But you also need the oven, the yeast, the customers, the bakery, <laughs> the sales model, the branding, the baggage, <laughs> the ability to run payments. You need all of these things. And I think I was far more focused on fundraising and SaaS metrics in the early days than I should be. And if I had my time again, I would spend even more time on building the company rather than focusing on the enabler, which was the fundraising. So for the people that are listening, Jeremy, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find. Jeremy King, um, attests. Find me on LinkedIn. Also, my email is not that hard to, to, <laughs> to discover. First name dot last name at askatest.com. Um, uh, I'm not particularly active on Twitter, although I might change that soon with the change in ownership and excited to see what happens with that. Um, or come and find me at events. I love to go to Sasta. I love SaaS stock. 
Web Summit, uh, always out there, but um, often in London and New York and always excited to chat with other people working on interesting problems about interesting things. Amazing. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Uh, a pleasure to chat. Thank you for the great questions and um, come and find us at askatest.com. You can try our product for free. You can run a survey to um, 100 real consumers in the US or UK and ask them anything that you think would help them with your business. That's why we exist. That's the thing we make easy and we actually give that away for free on our website. So come and try it if you're a B2C company and learn something new right now. It'll take 90 seconds to start and you'll get the results very quickly. And you can start wondering what your target customers want. And that can be less of a mystery and help you more smash your targets. So um, come find us. And thank you very much for all the great questions and the pleasure to chat. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.